Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and SoundCloud. And the link in the description should take you to my Patreon page. Please give some support if you want to see these lectures uh, keep coming. And if there's any topic or question you particularly want me to talk about, please let me know. I'm going to talk today about the origins of the Bible, who wrote the Bible, and I'm going to focus particularly on the Hebrew Bible, or Old Testament, as Christians call it, uh, which is a whole complicated uh, can of worms unto itself, let alone the New Testament. So I'm going to try to answer the question, who wrote the Bible with regard to this early part of the Bible based on the best documentary and archaeological evidence that we have as of current day? It's a very complicated question, and it's one which might initially sound a little uh, sacrilegious to some people. Uh, the obvious answer to who wrote the Bible that many people might immediately spit back is, well, God wrote the Bible. But it's really uh, not that simple, and obviously it's not that simple. And the mere notion that the Bible was somehow handed down in one complete chunk from God is really a very modern, new notion. It's something that has only really come up with modern-day fundamentalism which is a mode of thinking that comes from the 19th century and really more so from the 20th century. And the, the very word fundamentalist or fundamentalism is, is a 20th century word. Uh, before recent times, uh, it was simply widely known and accepted that many different people uh, wrote the Bible at different times. And you can see that, of course, in things like the Gospel according to Mark and the Gospel according to Luke. And also in, in the Old Testament, uh, there are introductory passages that say they, these are the words of the prophet Isaiah or the prophet Amos, and there are lines that say this is a psalm of David, and so forth. So there are many different parts of the Bible, both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, that are marked out and have traditionally been believed to be uh, written by particular historical individuals, although uh, you might also believe that they were written by some kind of uh, divine inspiration. Uh, the only exception to this really is the earliest part of the Hebrew Bible, what's traditionally called the Torah, which uh, Jews, as a matter of Orthodox teachings, tend to say was written entirely by Moses. But uh, even that attribution really has been widely known for centuries to be dubious at best, considering that the end of the Torah actually describes the death and burial of Moses. So how could Moses have written that? Well, rabbis have customarily said, oh, well, it was all written by Moses except that little last part, which was written by Joshua. But everyone uh, has really known for a very long time that that's kind of a, an easy cop-out, and that, in fact, the 
original authorship of the Bible, including those early books called the Torah, is very mysterious and open to question and has become uh, a subject of intense scholarly debate in recent years. And the scholarly theories based on historical and archaeological evidence have been uh, not only widely debated, but they've come to be discussed and taken more seriously even within Orthodox religious communities. So today, if you went to uh, an observant traditional minister or rabbi, you might be able to get a serious conversation about these theories of who wrote the Bible. It's become uh, a much more current and active topic of discussion. Okay, so the, the Hebrew Bible is basically congruent, more or less, with what Christians traditionally call the Old Testament. It is traditionally in Hebrew called the Tanakh, which is actually uh, an acronym composed of three parts, T, N, and K. So the T part stands for the Torah, as I mentioned, which is the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, also called the five books of Moses, or the Pentateuch, meaning simply the five scrolls. Uh, their, their names are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they basically cover the creation of the world, the origins of the Jewish people, and the basic terms of the covenant between the Jewish people and their God. Then the N is Nevi'im, which means prophets, so that's sort of all your, your greatest hits, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and also many minor prophets, your Hosea, Malachi, Obadiah, and so on. And then the last section is Ketuvim, which basically just means documents or writings. It's sort of other stories and commentaries relating to the Torah, including uh, the Psalms, Proverbs, uh, books of of uh, epic stories like Esther, Ruth, uh, and others. So these are your three basic layers to the Hebrew Bible, which make up the Tanakh, as we traditionally say uh, in Hebrew. And the adherence and the passing down of this body of scriptures is really one of the key explanations of how the Jewish people have continued to exist as a collective people through all these millennia, is that there's a shared canon of holy books that are considered to be the sort of basis and wellspring of teachings and laws. And this, uh, the commitment to literacy, to a shared language, and a shared canon of scriptures is really uh, foundational to this collective that we call uh, the Jewish people. These books, however, were written, and we can say this as scholars with a great deal of confidence, were written by many different people over a stretch of time of around a thousand years or so. And the different books represent different points of view from different times and places when they were composed, and even beyond that, within some books, we can see different elements and pieces that were taken from different sources. So it's a very complicated, multi-layered collection of books that we call the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. And you have to do a kind of intensive archaeology 
both literal archaeology, digging stuff up in the ground, and also a kind of figurative archaeology in the text to figure out who wrote it and when and where. These various different books and documents were uh, accumulated over time and they were collected into a canon, which is a word for an authoritative accepted body of texts. They were collected into a canon in basically the first and second centuries AD. So Jews collected and canonized their scriptures at a, basically the same time that the Christians were doing the same thing with their canon, which we call the New Testament. Uh, although, of course, as you probably know, Christians today also consider the Old Testament to be canon as well. But this process of canonizing happened basically in the wake of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans when people were dispersed and they had to figure out how to continue to pass on their laws and their teachings. And having an accepted canon of texts was a sort of necessary and obvious part of that. However, even once this canonical list was made, so maybe by around 300 or so AD, you could sit down with a rabbi and he could run down with you, this is the Torah, these are the prophets, this is chronicles, this is kings, and so on and so forth, and give you a nice uh, list of what is in the canon, that still didn't mean that those books were in a sort of standardized, accepted form. You still might have gone around to different towns and communities where there were Jews and found, say, two different versions of the book of Deuteronomy that had significant differences among them. There might be different words. There might be words that were read and pronounced differently. There might be some different sentences or whole paragraphs that differed from one another. And this uh, obviously would cause confusion and ambiguity. So it was only hundreds of years after that, in the 8th, 9th, and 10th centuries AD, that a group of rabbis in Palestine, who are called the Masoretes, sat down and formed councils to hammer out these differences and produce standardized editions of the entire Hebrew Bible so that everyone would be reading the same Deuteronomy, the same book of Chronicles, the same book of Esther, and so on. Uh, and the sort of final form into which they put this collection is called the Masoretic Text, right? The Masoretes put together this Masoretic Text. So if you were to open a Torah scroll in a synagogue, basically anywhere around the world today, you would be reading the Masoretic Text. But it's important to remember this Masoretic text was not put together and finalized by these editors until really the Middle Ages. So there was, there was more than a thousand years of history of composition, circulation, editing, and changes uh, before that. And so uh, it's, it's not a simple straightforward situation where you can just read a book like Leviticus and know that what you're reading is exactly as it was originally composed. And in fact, uh, hardly any book of the Bible that we see today looks and sounds exactly the way it was originally written. It's a much more complicated history than that. The earliest copies of the Masoretic text that we have are from the 10th century. So, uh, so we know that, that 
there was a whole lot of history before this Masoretic text eventually appeared on uh, parchment, basically, and later on, on paper. And by the way, just so you're aware, there are other parallel versions of the Torah that are slightly different from the Masoretic text, and the most significant of them is the Samaritan text. So there's actually a group of Israelites that still today lives in Israel and Palestine who did not accept, did not embrace the reforms to Jewish laws and teachings that happened during the Babylonian captivity, right? So they were among the Israelites who remained in Judea while the leadership of Judah was sent into captivity in Babylon. And so they have various different uh, practices. They still practice animal sacrifice. They have their own temple, which is on a different site, not in Jerusalem. And they have their own uh, Hebrew Bible, which does not conform exactly with the Masoretic text, but has some differences here and there. So uh, that is one sort of leftover marker that we can see still today that shows that this process of writing, compiling, and editing the Hebrew Bible was not simple and straightforward, and it could lead in, in different directions. Okay, so all of that basically is preliminary to say that digging into the Bible and figuring out when and where it was written is a highly complicated process that involves picking apart and debating what particular uh, lines came from where, and you have to look at both the content of the different passages of the Bible and their language and their style in order to do this kind of historical archaeological guesswork. So in a minute, I'm going to talk about the beginning of the Bible. But before I do that, I'm going to just go back and recap a bit of the history that I left off with in the last podcast about the origins of Judaism. So I talked a bit about the earliest years of the Jewish people and where the body of laws and, and ideas that we now call Judaism came from. So I'm going to run down what the different stages were again just for a moment so that we'll be able to talk then about where the different texts of the Bible likely came from. So somewhere before 1200 BC, maybe in the 1200s, maybe 1300s BC, a collectivity of people who called themselves Israel migrated into the hilly uplands of Canaan. They most likely came primarily from the lower caste people of the Canaanite civilization. And we know that they existed as a distinct people by around 1200 BC. Later, they formed a centralized monarchy based at Jerusalem and founded most likely by a king called David around roughly around 1000 BC. This united monarchy didn't last for very long, maybe only about 100 years or so till somewhere around 900 BC. At this point, the kingdom split into two parts, a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom at Judah. These two kingdoms fell under the domination of the Assyrian Empire. The northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed in 722 BC by the Assyrians. 
thus beginning a period of Judah standing alone as the only quasi-autonomous Jewish state. This lasted until 586 BC when Judah was conquered by the Empire of Babylon. And following that conquest in 586 BC, the leadership class of Judah were put into exile in Babylon. So we call the period from about 586 BC to 539 BC the Babylonian exile. After about 539 BC, the new ruling power in Babylon, the Empire of Persia, allowed these Jewish exiles to return to Judah. So the Babylonian exile ended, and we had a period uh, called the Second Temple Period. So the, the leaders of, of Judah who returned rebuilt the temple around 537 BC, and this temple more or less lasted until the Romans destroyed it in AD 70. So this long Second Temple Period was a period, as I said before, of great uh, division and variety of different parties and factions among the Jews, different philosophical schools. And it was a period of political tumult where uh, Judea was ruled first by the Persian Empire, then uh, by an independent Jewish kingdom under the Maccabees and the Hasmonean kings. Uh, and I won't get into the details of those, but you might remember the Maccabees were the group that uh, overthrew the Seleucid Persian Empire, created an independent kingdom. That's what's commemorated in the holiday of Hanukkah. I talked about that last time. So we had a period, again, of an independent Jewish kingdom, but that then was conquered by the Romans. And so the, the last part of the Second Temple period was under Roman rule. And then there was the destruction of the temple, and Jerusalem in AD 70, and the dispersal of the Jews to various places outside uh, Judea. So that's, uh, that's just a brief uh, rundown again of the history that I talked about in the last part of the last lecture. Formation of Israel, the united monarchy, the two kingdoms, uh, the conquest by Babylon, and the Babylonian exile, and the second temple period. So this more or less, this stretch of time from the sort of dawn of the Israelite chiefdom down to the Second Temple period is the, the stretch of time when the various books of the Bible were first composed and when they first began to be edited together into something like a collection of books, although they would have been, literally speaking, they would have been scrolls. Okay, so if that's the area of history we're talking about, how and when and where did the books of the Bible begin to be written? Well, to answer that question, I'm going to begin from the beginning. I'm going to start off by simply reading out to you the first part of the Bible, which of course reads as follows. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and give you peace. Okay, some of you might be saying, whoa, wait on, wait, wait a second, that's not the beginning of the Bible. And of course you're right if you open up 
a Bible or a Torah scroll as we see it today and start reading from the first line. So what I'm doing here is I'm, I'm tricking you because those first lines that we read in the Bible today were not written first and they are not the oldest historically or archaeologically speaking. Rather, the brief prayer that I just read to you is actually the oldest part of the Bible, archaeologically speaking, because it is the, the passage of the Bible that has been found, written down the earliest. Okay, It was found on a small rolled up silver scroll called Ketev Hinnom II because it was one of two of these small silver scrolls that were found at a burial site in the West Bank near Bethlehem called Ketev Hinnom. It was found there in 1970 uh, at this uh, burial site with a collection of various goods. It was kept by archaeologists and not unrolled because they were afraid that by unrolling it they would it was brittle and it would be destroyed. So it was not unrolled until 2004 when scientists were able to find a way to uh, to unfurl these this silver foil without completely breaking it apart. And when they unrolled it they found on it a very early form of ancient Hebrew writing with this brief prayer on it as well as some other fragments with some small uh, phrases that could just be uh, barely be read. This same basic prayer with a couple other lines added to it is then also found in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 6. And the, the entire passage in Numbers reads as follows. Uh, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. The Ketev Hinnom scrolls are estimated to be from around 600 BC. So that's a little while before the Babylonian conquest and the Babylonian captivity. So we're seeing here a little tiny textual fragment coming from the practice of Jewish worship from this very early era, from this Judah era, the actual roots of Judaism uh, before the Babylonian captivity. So Archaeologically speaking, this is the first written record we have of any passage of the Bible. And it helps give us a bit of a window into where the oldest parts of the Bible actually came from. So what do we, what do we see here? Well, it's a short blessing prayer written in verse. We don't hear the verse necessarily in the English translation, but in the Hebrew it's, it's in a rhythmic verse. The small silver scroll on which it was written was almost surely an apotropaic amulet. An apotropaic means protective, particularly protecting against danger or evil. There are other pieces of these two scrolls from Ketev Hinnom that have phrases referring 
to God as a warrior, a helper, and a rebuker of evil. So it makes sense that uh, this prayer is a sort of invocation of God's protection. It is very similar to other small uh, Phoenician amulets that have been found around the ancient Mediterranean and Near East that have protective prayers on them. And there is evidence, including textual evidence, that ancient Jews similarly created protective amulets, particularly out of silver, and that they associated these silver objects with uh, the utterances of God. We can see in Psalm 12, and the, psalm, the earlier psalms are also very ancient and may, come, may have originally been composed in this very early era before the Babylonian captivity. And in Psalm 12, we see the lines, the utterances of Yahweh are pure utterances, silver refined in a furnace in the earth, purified seven times. You, O Yahweh, will guard them. You will protect him from this generation forever. So we probably see in Psalm 12 a very similar protective prayer which specifically refers to uh, silver representing the power of God's words. And the same idea then is embodied in these Ketef Hinnom scrolls. Okay, so what is the significance of this? Why does it matter that this particular little prayer which appears in Numbers chapter 6, also is found on the oldest known object with any kind of biblical writing uh, on it. Well, it corroborates an idea that literary scholars and archaeologists have often embraced and argued for anyway, which is that all sorts of material in the Bible probably began as kind of free-floating prayers, songs, and blessings that were then collected and written down and, you might say, pasted together into these books of narratives and laws that we see as the Bible. And if you're looking for the oldest passages in the Bible, one very likely indication of what is older material is if it is written in verse. Because verse is meant to be, it is designed to be committed to memory and passed down orally. It is made for oral recitation and memorization. So all sorts of very old material in the Bible probably originated as orally composed and orally passed down prayers and songs that then possibly after centuries of use, were eventually written down. And this little prayer that we see, this priestly uh, blessing that we see on the Ketef Hinnom scroll, most likely also was an orally recited prayer or blessing that then came to be written on objects or amulets and then eventually written into a book of the Bible. Right. So the earliest authors of the Bible are really unknown, anonymous, oral composers. That's, that's our, our most likely uh, situation. Okay, so, so that, little, uh, that little passage on the Ketev Hinnom scroll is, archaeologically speaking, the beginning of the Bible. Because as of now, it's the earliest one that we can see written down anywhere. 
that doesn't necessarily mean it's really the beginning of the Bible. So let's, let's stop here and start over again. What is actually the beginning of the Bible in another sense? Well, some would argue that really, uh, factually speaking, the beginning of the Bible is this passage. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. So if you know your Bible, you might recognize that as Exodus 15. It's a verse from the so-called Song of the Sea, which is the song that the Israelites sing after they have passed through the Red Sea and the Egyptian army has been drowned and defeated behind them. So it's what they sing in, in celebration. And that particular verse is repeated at the beginning of the song and then again afterwards. And, uh, and the book of Exodus says that it was sung by Miriam and the other women as they celebrate after passing through the Red Sea. Biblical scholars, when they discuss the question of what might be the oldest passage in the Bible to have been composed, this is what they often point to, this Song of the Sea. Why is that? Well, it's not because of archaeological evidence, but because of internal textual evidence. This Song of the Sea contains all sorts of strange words and phrases that are rarely or never seen anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. It seems to be in some sort of form of Hebrew that can't be found anywhere else. And it's not apparently a regional dialect because no one has been able to match it up with any record of any particular dialect anywhere around Judea. Rather, it seems it must be a very ancient and archaic form of Hebrew, uh, containing words and phrases that were already old-fashioned and passed out of usage by the time that the book of Exodus was written down. So what we see here most likely is a very old oral composition that had been passed down for many centuries, or at least for a few centuries, before it was written in these scrolls that then made up the book of Exodus. And for this reason, it's widely thought to be the oldest passage uh, in the Bible. The fact that, uh, that the Song of the Sea is so old and is very likely the earliest material that we can see anywhere in the Bible is also another reason to suppose that there may be some historical factual basis for the story of the Exodus. Because uh, this notion that the Israelites came, at least in part, from slaves who escaped from Egypt across the Red Sea, uh, it, it, it suggests that there is some, uh, that there's some more veracity to that story, that at least very early on, Israelites believed that that is where they came from. It might have been uh, composed, or it, it probably based on the archaic Hebrew, it's, it's very likely it was composed in the pre-monarchy era, maybe in the 1200s or 1100s BC. 
And interestingly, this earliest composition, according to the gloss that we see in that chapter of the book of Exodus, it was that, that repeated passage that I read to you was sung by Miriam and other women. So it suggests that this song, it might have been a song traditionally sung by women, and it might have been originally composed by Israelite women. Okay. So these two cases that I just, uh, that I just pointed to, the very ancient prayer in the book of Numbers and the song of the sea in the book of Exodus, they should give you some sense of the sort of uh, archaeological work and linguistic work that we have to do in order to try to unearth and reconstruct how uh, how the Bible was composed and how different materials were collected and stitched together into something like a coherent canon. This sort of work, this kind of scholarly uh, examination of the books of the Bible and this rigorous uh, examination of the books as compared to the archaeological and historical record, this began mainly in the 19th century and it began with German scholars in the mid and late 1800s who began to look at the Bible in this critical way, in the same way that one might examine a document like the donation of Constantine the core argument or core idea that has been the most intensely debated in modern biblical scholarship about the Hebrew Bible is called the documentary hypothesis. So the documentary hypothesis just begins, first of all, from the notion that the, the Bible, including the earliest parts of the Bible, the Torah, were pieced together from different older sources. And the documentary hypothesis was per first put forward by a German scholar who noticed a common repeating phenomenon in the first books of the Torah, Genesis and Exodus. He noticed that there was a great deal of doubling. And doubling basically means passages that repeat the same basic story or the same basic point twice, just with different wording. And a very important example of this doubling can be seen in Genesis chapter 15, which is discussing uh, the biblical patriarch Abraham and his conversations with God. And this is before the covenant had been sealed, so Abraham still had his old name, uh, Abram. And uh, Genesis 15 says, uh, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me, since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now you might notice here this passage talking about Abram's response to God repeats the same basic point twice, just worded a bit differently. Uh, so to sort of gloss this, it tells us Abram said, 
uh, God, what can you give me? Someone else is going to inherit my estate. And Abram said, God, what can you give me? Someone else is going to inherit my estate. Uh, it, it, it's, it's repeating itself. And if you look carefully through Genesis and Exodus, you see this happening many times. And sometimes entire narratives or entire events are repeated and told differently each time. So, for example, earlier in Genesis, when God creates humankind, it's told twice, and it seems to happen differently each time. So first, Genesis tells us, well, uh, you know, God created the earth and the creatures on it, and, in, uh, and then he created humankind, male and female, he created them. Though, of course, it uses this verb bara, which can mean create or also separate or distinguish. So God separates the heavens from the earth, and by creating humankind, he separates male from female. But then you get a story again, which says that first God created the male human, Adam, then saw that he was alone, and so took Adam's rib out of Adam and made it into a woman, Eve. So you have the male creation and then the female created out of the male. These two stories don't really line up. And uh, scholars, including traditional Jewish rabbis, have noticed before that these two stories don't really add up. And so they have uh, filled in, they've created midrash or commentaries that sort of fill in more details and say that, well, initially God created a male and female. The male was Adam, the female was Lilith. But Lilith was not submissive to Adam, and so she was cast out of the garden. And then God saw that Adam was alone and without a companion, and so he took the rib and made it into Eve. And in this way, they sort of fill in some extra material so that the two stories seem to line up. But, but the only reason why the situation arose in the first place is because of this doubling. Okay, and you see similar things in the story of Noah. You know, there are two passages that talk about Noah loading people and animals onto the ark, and they're not exactly the same. And you can, you can do this over and over again, all through Genesis and Exodus. So these early German scholars saw this doubling, and they tried to make sense of it. And what they started to do was basically uh, compare the doubled passages, one version against the other. And something significant that they found was that when a passage is doubled and it refers to God, usually one version of the story or the quotation will use one name for God, namely uh, Yahweh, the, or Yahweh, the personal name, and the other version will use the other name, Elohim. And I've mentioned both of those before. So you have Yahweh, the sort of personal God, which probably came from that Midianite cult of Yahoo. And then you have Elohim, the sort of more formal name, meaning the heavenly beings. Uh, so it seems that there are these many passages in Genesis and Exodus that, uh, that double the same story, but use a different name for God in each. So what did these scholars do? They started to take all of these doubled passages and cut them apart and line up together all the passages that use Yahweh as the name for referring to God and then line up the other passages that use Elohim. 
And what do you find? Well, what you get is two more or less coherent, more or less consistent, complete stories of the creation of the world and the origins of the Jewish people, one of which uses Yahweh and the other of which uses the name Elohim. And there are other differences. There are fine stylistic differences and fine ideological differences between these two stories beyond just the name that they use uh, for God. And on this basis, the initial documentary hypothesis was formulated, which basically says that Genesis and Exodus are originally stitched together from two separate documents, that there were two separate complete documents written by different people, and they, the scholars named them the J document and the E document, based on which name of God they habitually used. So this is the, this is the basic core of the documentary hypothesis, that the, the early books of the Bible are a composite tissue made from different complete sources, the most significant and the biggest of which are the J source and the E source. Okay, so what can we see that further that distinguishes J and E? Uh, they use these different names for God. They also have different theologies. So when you look at the J text, if you put together the passages that seem to be uh, consistent with one another and that use the name uh, Yahweh, or, or, or Yahweh, we have a more personal God in, in the J text. Uh, God appears to people and converses with them in person. There's even the passage you might remember where God shows up in the form of an ordinary man at Abraham's tent, has a whole conversation with him, goes on a walk with him, and, he, and it takes Abraham a long time to even realize that this is God. So God is very personal. God seems to be at times flawed, as are the people like Abraham and Joshua and others that he interacts with. Or I shouldn't, I shouldn't bring up uh, Joshua just yet, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and others. Uh, whereas in the e-text, God is much more distant, abstract, and transcendent. The interactions with God are much more mystical. He tends to appear in dreams or visions, uh, apparitions. And this particular passage that I read to you from Genesis 15 is particularly significant, not just because it's a nice little example of this doubling, but also because scholars theorize that this is the first appearance of the E source is this uh, beginning of chapter 15, where, uh, which says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, right? And this is, this is the sort of thing you see in, in the E source. And there, there are also other stories like uh, Jacob's vision of the ladder, right? Where he has a dream, a stone sort of imparts a vision into his head in a dream where he sees the sky opening up and angels going up and down on a ladder. It's very mystical. It's very deeply symbolic. Uh, it's a vision that is more typical of the e-source. There's also a geographic difference between J and E. J habitually refers to places and events in 
the southern area of Judea, basically what was the kingdom of Judah. Whereas the E source refers constantly to Ephraim and other places in the north in what was the kingdom of Israel. And this uh, is a very good clue for who wrote these two different documents and where and when. There's a difference in the sort of moral outlook of the two sources. J seems to be much more kind of permissive and forgiving. It shows the flaws of the biblical patriarchs and others and sort of treats them with apparent leniency, whereas E is much more morally stringent. People who do wrong are punished. And these differences in a moral outlook possibly coincide and reinforce the geographic differences. So scholars have theorized that the J source was written in the southern kingdom of Judah and that it is, uh, its outlook tends to suggest that although Judah is flawed and has failings, it still is entitled from God to rule over all of Judea, whereas the northern document, E, was written in the kingdom of Israel, and it is criticizing and condemning bad rulers and bad leaders and reinforcing the idea that Israel had the right to rebel and separate from Judah. So there may be this kind of political subtext to the differences in J and E. On the basis of these geographic references, uh, on the basis of archaeology and the political history that we know of early uh, Israel, scholars have theorized about when and where J and E might have been composed. So this is all very uncertain and ambiguous and much debated, but uh, the basic hypothesis holds that the J document was written as a complete document in Judah, the southern kingdom, possibly shortly after the separation of the two kingdoms, so maybe somewhere around 800-850 BC is, is a decent guess for the composition of the J document. The E document was written a little later, maybe somewhere around 700 or so. Uh, BC, or 700, or maybe 750 or so BC. So, so you could guess that they're maybe about a hundred years apart, with J coming first, around the time that the two kingdoms split, and then E a little later. At some point, uh, even after that, maybe in about the 600s BC, a redactor or editor took the J and the E and uh, split them up and sewed them together into a series of scrolls that seem superficially to tell one continuous story, right? So the, it was an attempt to create some kind of coherent whole story uh, of the mythology of creation and the origins of the Jewish people and their covenant that would be somehow consistent between the northern and southern points of view. And yet this, you know, this was a very uh, difficult and uh, problematic pr 
project to undertake, and we can see some of the confusing results like these repeated uh, doublings. Now I should note here that, uh, as I said, the E source seems as if it begins with Abraham and Abraham's visions uh, of God. But you might remember I referred to other doublings uh, earlier in the book of Genesis that talk about uh, the creation of humankind, the flood, Noah, and so forth. So uh, this is actually an indication that there are more than just these two sources. The documentary hypothesis, as it's developed, holds that J and E were the, were the earliest and that they were eventually stitched together, but then there are also other sources, additionally, that were written down later that have also then been integrated into the books we call the Torah. So, so what are those? Well, the next one, chronologically speaking, probably was Deuteronomy. So, you may remember from last time, after the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, Judah stood basically alone, maintaining its partial autonomy within the Assyrian Empire, right? But during the reign of the young king Josiah, the scribes and royal officials at the court around Josiah sought to reform Jewish practice and Jewish worship and to create a monolatry focused almost entirely or maybe exclusively on the Jewish god Yahweh and sought to create this reform as a groundwork for then declaring total independence from the Assyrians. During this reform, certain uh, royal scribes and priests came forward to the king and claimed that they had discovered a new book, a scroll, hidden away somewhere in the temple that had been previously unknown. And they read this scroll out to Josiah and persuaded him to carry out the laws and commandments contained in this previously unknown scroll. So this scroll, historically speaking, was it was a forgery, right? It, it claimed to be a further book of law given by Moses, but it almost surely was not composed as early as J or E. It was composed during the reign of Josiah as a tool for carrying out this reform program. And this forged scroll, which was brought forward to Josiah in the 600s, is basically what we now see as the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, so this is, this is where Deuteronomy comes from, and Deuteronomy comes from the Greek, uh, the, the second law, right? Or, uh, the, the, you, or you might say the new law. Uh, it, was, it was put forward as an addition, an extension, and a revision of the existing laws of Moses recorded in whatever sort of version of Genesis and Exodus they had at that time. Deuteronomy was composed either by a single author, who might have been a, probably a royal scribe in the court of Josiah, or maybe by a group, a sort of committee of authors. We call this person or group the Deuteronomist, 
and in abbreviation we just call it D. So we now have, we've talked about the J source and the E source. The Deuteronomist is the D source. And the Deuteronomist, we can tell from the style and some of the content, the Deuteronomist almost surely didn't just write Deuteronomy. They also wrote uh, an extensive history of the Jewish people, which seeks to uh, complete and extend the more rudimentary history that we see in Genesis and Exodus. So they also wrote the books we call Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. So what was this Deuteronomist up to? Basically what they did was they put forward this extension of the laws of Moses, which includes the Ten Commandments. And it seems historically, it's hard to say for sure, but it seems probably the Deuteronomist was the first person to write down the Ten Commandments, and they may have actually been the inventor of the Ten Commandments. The earliest uh, versions of, of Exodus that we can reconstruct from based on the J and E material didn't include the Ten Commandments. It wasn't originally in there. Rather, it was uh, put forward by the Deuteronomist. It may have been originally invented by the Deuteronomist. And Deuteronomy also emphasizes love of God, emotional attachment to God. This is where you get the passages saying uh, you should love God you know, when you rise up and when you go to bed. Uh, you should put uh, God's word uh, between your eyes and on your doorposts. It contains the Shema. Uh, you know, Israel has only one God, and that God is Adonai. Um, all of these sort of basic teachings about devotion to God and basic moral teachings, uh, you know, love of neighbor, the Ten Commandments, those are in Deuteronomy. And then the Deuteron Deuteronomic history of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings basically traces how this original covenant between God and the Israelites uh, created the foundation for a sort of uh, divinely sanctified, divinely sanctioned kingdom, right? And it reinforces the authority and holiness of the Jewish monarchy, which makes sense when these reformers were looking to the king, Josiah, as the authority figure to carry out these reforms. Okay, so we've seen how J and E are theoretically our earliest written uh, materials, J and E almost surely collected and included various oral materials, songs, poems, prayers that were widely used among Jews. Deuteronomy adds uh, the book of Deuteronomy and the, the histories. Then uh, next, most likely, was a priestly source, also called simply P. It's much debated exactly when the priestly source composed their documents, but it most likely was a bit after the return from the Babylonian captivity, right? So remember the Babylonian captivity in the 500s BC, that is when uh, priests and uh, teachers in Babylon formulate something more like monotheism. There is one transcendent God, who is the creator of the entire universe, the creator of humankind, and is the only uh, real god. They were probably influenced to some degree by Persian teachings, Zoroastrian teachings, and they brought these ideas back to Judah when they returned to Judah from the captivity. 
Sometime uh, after that, probably in the 400s BC, a priestly source, who again might have been one individual or might have been a group or a committee, uh, adds more material to the scrolls of J and E and D, which are more strictly monotheist, which present God as transcendent and otherworldly, and which are very concerned with correct ritual and temple-centered worship of this God. So the P source composed practically all of Leviticus, most of Numbers, but not all of it, and also big parts of Genesis and Exodus, including the beginning of Genesis. So when we open a Bible today and the first lines we see are, you know, in, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and without form, that is from the P source. So that is coming from a comparatively later uh, point of view, philosophical and theological point of view, embraced by the priests after the Babylonian captivity. P probably also, it's probably also took the Ten Commandments and maybe some other passages from Deuteronomy and inserted them into Exodus. So before P, if you had written down, if you had read through the scrolls talking about the Exodus, uh, the, the sort of uh, proto book of Exodus, what would have happened is uh, you would have had the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. Moses would have led them out of captivity to Sinai. Moses would have gone up Mount Sinai and he would have experienced what is called a theophany, a sort of encounter or vision of God. And this theophany or, uh, or, or sighting of God gave him authority to then govern and lead the Israelites into the Promised Land. But the specific teachings wouldn't have been made explicit, and they wouldn't necessarily have been moralistic teachings. They wouldn't have been teachings about, you know, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Those sort of moral doctrines that we now think of as kind of central to Judaism were really uh, collected and written down probably first by P and then put into Exodus. Uh, or would have, sorry, would have first been collected and written down by D and then were put into Exodus by P. So once P adds in these passages about things like the creation, the Ten Commandments, uh, redactors then, uh, more editors have to rush in and sort of stitch all of these pieces together and make them into something that reads kind of like a coherent story. And, uh, and a coherent explanation of, for example, why are the, all, all these laws, ritualistic laws in Leviticus? What do they have to do with the origins of the Jewish people? And these redactors basically add in passages saying things like, God told Moses X. God told Aaron Y. Right? And you have this uh, nice sort of uh, organizational scheme where Moses is the governor and lawgiver, and Aaron is the priest, the leader of worship. And so all of these different passages that might talk about uh, how marriage should be governed, you simply say, this is what Moses said, God told or God told this to Moses. And laws and customs about worship 
and the temple and sacrifice and prayer, you say these were given to Aaron. So these redactors sort of added in these little explanatory notes to order these various materials into something that looks like a coherent whole. And they also, uh, the redactors also add in uh, transition phrases, connecting phrases, and genealogies. So if you open up a chapter in the Torah and it starts with, this guy was the father of this guy, and this guy begat this guy, and you know, 10 generations passed, 20 generations passed, those were added in by redactors as a way of sort of filling out the empty time and giving you uh, a sort of coherent uh, timeline in which to fit the different stories that you encounter as you read through the Torah. Okay, so by around, uh, we can say probably by around 400 BC or so, we have a set of five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that look like they more or less tell something like a complete story and that then are passed down as the Torah or teachings. And later on, they will be included in the larger canon of the Hebrew Bible and they will be put into a sort of standardized form by the Masoretes in the Middle Ages. So that is a, a brief summary of what we can say about the Torah. And then just to take us forward a little bit in time, there's, it gets a little bit less mysterious as we go into the later parts of the Hebrew Bible. So the next section, as I said, is the prophets, the Nevi'im. It seems as if the earliest complete books of prophecy, and probably really the earliest complete books of the Bible are the prophets Amos and Hosea. And uh, Amos, uh, these are considered minor prophets, but Amos and Hosea probably were the first. They probably were from about the 700s BC. So uh, they came, they were written probably a little bit after J and E were written. Uh, but they were sort of short, complete compositions that have not been stitched together over time and added to over time in the same way that, that the Torah has been. So if you want to see uh, a sort of complete, coherent composition, look at the, uh, the books of Amos and Hosea. And they are examples of this sort of early prophetic endeavor, which was to infuse more of a moral thrust into Jewish law and to put uh, sort of social equality, uh, self-sacrifice, care for the poor, care for the vulnerable, generosity, to make those kind of central guiding laws uh, of, of Jewish worship. Uh, and we see the same basic ideas in the early parts of Isaiah. So Isaiah uh, was probably put together from several different pieces that were written at different times. The first part of Isaiah, about the first 33 chapters or so, might be about as old as Amos and Hosea are. It might also be from, uh, it's pre-Babylonian pre exile from the 600s, maybe even 700s BC. And the fir these first parts of Isaiah also emphasize the importance of uh, moral goodness, 
of charity, honesty, as opposed to simply ritual performance, or even over and above ritual performance. Then there are other parts of Isaiah later that were probably written uh, during the Babylonian exile in the 500s BC, and then later parts that were written even later. And at about the same time that the Torah was being collected and stitched together, somebody took these different prophecies and utterances and put them together into one big book of Isaiah and attributed it all to this prophet Isaiah. Other prophets also came uh, during this time period just before or during the Babylonian exile. Jeremiah may have been originally written just before the conquest by Babylon or maybe during. Ezekiel was written clearly during the Babylonian exile by a priest who was in exile in Babylon. And other, uh, other minor prophets then came later after the return from Babylon. Uh, Job probably was just after the exile. And if any one of them can be said to be last, it most likely was Jonah, uh, which actually isn't, although it's classified as a minor prophet, it doesn't actually contain any prophetic utterances. Uh, it's simply a story of this man, Jonah, and his uh, the, the mission given to him by God. So the, uh, the various books of prophecy, most of them probably began from an actual prophet preaching visions that he or she had uh, experienced and delivering a message, which very often was a message about morality and good conduct as apart from ritual observance. And most of them, after they were written, uh, probably circulated around independently and were read and discussed uh, among uh, on their own before they were eventually collected into the canon that we now see as the Hebrew Bible. Lastly, we can look at the Ketuvim, and the story with the Ketuvim is pretty similar. The oldest material in these other writings and stories probably goes back to the uh, before the Babylonian exile and maybe even some back to the all the way back to the united monarchy. Uh, for example, the Psalms, uh, there are you know, more than 100 Psalms. They were probably written over a very length, long period of time by many different people. They were probably then collected into small packets, and then those packets were eventually assembled into the big scroll we see now as the Book of Psalms. The earliest of them might actually be, they're, they're traditionally attributed to David, and they're labeled Psalm of David, and some of them might actually go back to that monarchy period. Uh, they may be that old, or at least they may have been composed that early, and then again, because they are songs, because they're in verse, were passed down orally for some time before they were written and collected in a scroll. Uh, but others of them surely come from the Babylonian exile period, and, uh, and even later, and you, for example, the famous uh, Rivers of Babylon psalm, which is Psalm, I believe, 136 or 137, depending on exactly how you number them, uh, that Rivers of Babylon psalm clearly is written from the point of view of a person in exile in Babylon, uh, talking about returning, uh, the hope of returning to Jerusalem. Uh, so 
so we know that psalms were, were composed over many hundreds of years. There also is a body of Ketuvim books traditionally called the wisdom literature, which traditionally certainly includes Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. Uh, and these uh, books were all written by different people at different times, but all of them show a similar kind of philosophical point of view or school of thought, which is very much influenced by Greek and Hellenistic philosophy. The idea that there's a sort of pure thought or pure wisdom that human beings can encounter and that in some way was uh, an essential part of God's creation or first, or even the first creation of God before God created the sort of uh, physical, tactile world. Uh, you can see this, for example, in Proverbs 8, where uh, a personified wisdom speaking as, as a woman says, I am the first of, of God's creations. I was there when he fashioned the earth and the sky and the sea. Uh, so this sort of line of thinking you can see in several of these Ketuvim books, which probably come from mainly the 5th and 4th centuries BC, right? So after the return from the Babylonian exile. And they have a lot of similarities and commonalities with ideas you see in Greek philosophy around the same time. Uh, Ecclesiastes is an interesting case because uh, it was, um, it's, attributed to a person, a single individual, who in Greek is called Ecclesiastes, in Hebrew is called Koheleth, and this means simply the gatherer. Uh, and so it, it seems as if what, what we may be seeing in Ecclesiastes is a sort of wise person or a teacher who had followers that he or she would gather and preach to, and someone collected these teachings and utterances of Koheleth, the gatherer, and wrote some little passages to sort of stitch them together into a book, right? Uh, Proverbs probably was written by many different people over time, much like the Psalms, but more of them can be dated a bit more confidently to the later period. And Job also contains a story about a man who is tested by God named Job, uh, someone probably collected, uh, took this story and put uh, a sort of explanatory framework around it uh, to make it into a, a more complete uh, book. Uh, the Song of Songs is an erotic uh, love poem, probably also written uh, 4th or maybe 3rd century or so BC. And uh, Esther is uh, a story about a heroic uh, Jewish queen married to the Persian emperor. It almost surely was written uh, during the period of Persian rule over Judea. Uh, and it's, it portrays the Persian emperor in a sort of neutral or, or good light while he had evil advisors around him who wished to persecute Jews. Uh, an interesting thing about Esther, for one thing, is that it probably wasn't written in Judea. Uh, it may very likely have been written by Jews elsewhere in the empire, maybe even in Persia. Uh, so uh, it's, a, it's an interesting case to see that it ended up in the canon. 
Uh, the book of Daniel is probably even a little later, maybe 3rd century BC, although again it's another forgery. It is attributed to the much earlier legendary figure of the prophet Daniel, but it clearly was written in about the 3rd century uh, BC. And, um, and, and probably, or, or actually I should say more likely the 2nd century BC, around the time of the Maccabee rebellion against the Seleucid Persians. Uh, and it was written to sort of fit that particular political moment. So arguably Daniel may have been the, the latest uh, and last book to be written in what's now the uh, Hebrew Bible. Now, as I said, the process of canonization followed a bit later after the destruction of the Second Temple. Uh, and councils of rabbis over time engaged in debates over what they should consider real authoritative holy scripture and what should be included uh, when a synagogue uh, reads from scriptures as part of worship. Uh, all of these various prophets that I've talked about, all of these books, uh, obviously the Torah was by that time fairly uh, deeply accepted as authoritative teaching. Uh, these various uh, prophets were thrown in. These other writings like Psalms, Proverbs, so uh, Esther, all of them get included. Uh, a few controversial cases make it in to the canon. Uh, and these interesting controversial ones particularly are Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, and Esther. Song of Songs, it should be kind of obvious, it's an erotic love poem. You know, what is that doing in the Bible? Well, uh, you can choose to interpret it as allegorical and is on some level representing the sort of uh, marital love between God and Israel uh, and the, the covenant between God and the Jewish people can be seen as a kind of marriage, metaphorically speaking. So, uh, so the advocates of the Song of Songs got that one in. Uh, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes very clearly and straightforwardly asserts that there is no afterlife. Okay, once you die, you're just gone. Uh, this is a view that not all Jews agreed on at that time, and that not all Jews agree on today. Uh, it's a sort of open question, really, in Jewish teachings. Is there an afterlife? And if so, like, what is it? Um, Ecclesiastes says that there isn't any. And that view uh, was not universally accepted, but it also was not disqualifying. There were other Jews who, who all likewise didn't believe in any sort of afterlife or resurrection, but who believed that Judaism was about how you live your life in the, the living, waking world, and, and only that. Uh, so Ecclesiastes made it in. Uh, Esther. Esther made it in even though it never mentions God. Uh, this can seem strange today, and probably some people in, in at the time it was canonized were not entirely comfortable with it, but uh, remember, as I said before, Judaism isn't a religion. Judaism is the laws and customs of the Jewish people. So since the rabbis at that time saw Esther as having value as a, a sort of teaching tool in how to live and behave as a Jew, it uh, was accepted into the canon. So all of those books made it into the canon. There are others that were clearly widely known and widely circulated 
in the Second Temple period that didn't make it in. Uh, there are books like uh, the Book of Enoch, which is a very uh, complicated, visionary, prophetic book dealing with uh, hell and the end of the world. It clearly was widely influential in the Second Temple period, but for whatever reason, it didn't make it into the canon. It may have been controversial. It may have been seen as less relevant uh, as Jews were sort of picking up the pieces after the destruction of the Temple. Uh, but for whatever reason, Enoch didn't make it in. There are others, uh, Sirach, uh, that also uh, didn't make it. But basically, the ones that were widely discussed and had a strong following uh, at the time when this process of canonization was happening all made it in. And so what we see is a Hebrew Bible that is very long and also multivarious and contains many different ideas and points of view that can often be uh, seen in intention or maybe in conversation with one another. And this is why if we study where the books of the Bible came from and when and how they were composed, uh, we get a very different uh, understanding of the Bible. And I'll, I'll talk about that more in a minute. But uh, lastly, to sort of take us up to the present, uh, the documentary hypothesis became very popular and influential after uh, about 1880 or so. First, you know, put forward by German scholars, and it's been discussed intensely since then. Uh, it has, however, been uh, criticized, and there are alternate viewpoints that have gained some traction in recent years that are not entirely in line with the documentary hypothesis. One of them is the, the so-called supplementary hypothesis, which is, has uh, gotten some more support and, and uh, won over more scholars recently. Uh, and the, the basic problem that it addresses with the documentary hypothesis is with the E document. So if you do this exercise of separating out the J and E passages, you get a pretty strong, clear, coherent J document that tells the story in a, an understandable way and is fairly consistent. You don't get the same thing really with E. Uh, if you put together an E document, it's a bit harder to tell what particular pieces were or were not from E uh, if they're not using this name Elohim, or even sometimes if they are. Uh, and they don't form a nice continuous narrative in the same way that J does. So what we have is a pretty strong consensus among scholars that there was a J document, but increasing doubt as to whether there was an E document. And the supplementary hypothesis basically just says there was no single coherent E source, but rather uh, there was a J source and then over time it was supplemented. People went in and added in uh, for additional passages or even additional stories and material to fill out uh, J. So it was a process of supplementation. Uh, and this, as I said, has, has a significant amount of support among scholars now. I think that there are also problems with, with this argument. For example, you know, if people were going in and supplementing J, why did they so often double things that J already said? You know, why, why would someone go in and add in 
Abraham saying the same thing over again, just with different wording. Um, nonetheless, this the, the supplementary hypothesis addresses some of the problems with the documentary hypothesis's positing of an e-document. Uh, there's also the fragmentary hypothesis, which has always had some followers since the 19th century and is still kind of present on the the intellectual scene, which basically says uh, there 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 are there were no complete documents that the Torah was made out of. Rather, there were many different fragments uh, of all different sorts and all different lengths and on all different topics that were stitched together. So you can't reconstruct these complete uh, J or E sources. But that is a really fringe view. Uh, the the consensus of almost all scholars does agree that there was a J document. And lastly, there are alternative scholarly points of view, particularly from sort of literary scholarship and post-structuralism, which holds that uh, that these hypotheses overlook the greater coherence uh, and completeness of the biblical canon. That uh, a book like Genesis or Exodus or even the Torah as a whole has a kind of self-referential completeness to it that uh, the documentary hypothesis ignores and that uh, it sort of it, it, it overlooks or discounts the unifying qualities in favor of this sort of speculative dissection. Uh, you know, that that's a valid point of view, but I would say that it certainly doesn't rebut the documentary hypothesis. And I would personally tend to disagree with it, because I think if you sit down and read the book of Genesis straight through, as we see it in the Bible today, it's a mess. I mean, that's certainly the impression that I've gotten from trying to read Genesis from beginning to end, is why is it skipping around? Why is it contradicting itself? Why is it repeating itself? Uh, it strikes me as uh, either an extremely poor composition or an edited-together tissue of materials that was not really edited for the sake of consistency and coherence, but more for the sake of including whatever material the editors thought was important enough to include, and what you get is a pretty badly composed whole. Now, as I said, if we look at the Bible historically this way, as a collection of materials that had to be canonized and edited together over many years, it we read the Bible differently. Uh, if we, for example, read a passage in one book that says there is an afterlife, and then another passage in another book that says there is no afterlife, uh, or we find other contradictions like this, we don't have to throw up our hands and say, ugh, this makes no sense, the book is contradicting itself. The book can't contradict itself because really there is no book, there is no the Bible, there is no single piece of literature that someone sat down and composed. Rather, it's a collection, it's a canon of works that were composed by different people at different times who naturally have some different points of view and different ideas, uh, but they're all included because for different reasons people saw them as having value or having authority, and it shouldn't be surprising at all 
if they're not entirely consistent with one another. If two books, like say, you know, Job and Proverbs, were entirely consistent with one another, then there would be no point in including both of them. Uh, rather, the different books have different things to offer, and even different passages within books have different things to offer, have different points of view, and are part of this, uh, this larger collection. So down the road, I expect that I'll probably talk about, uh, I'll probably talk some about Jesus, the roots of Christianity, and the New Testament, which can be examined in some very similar ways, although it is less ancient than the Hebrew Bible. So thank you for listening to Historian Explaining. Again, these lectures can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and SoundCloud. Uh, please email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com or comment on SoundCloud if you have reactions or questions or topics you want me to address. And please, if you can, uh, go to my Patreon page, also under Historiansplaining, and contribute what you can. Uh, I do want to keep these lectures coming, but uh, there are economic imperatives. So thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon. It was good for the Hebrew children. It will help you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, give me that old. I'm looking for religion. Give me that old. Oh, oh, oh.